You're listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. Joining us today is Dr. Tanya Harmer, Associate Professor at the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and expert on the Latin American left. She has written widely on the Chilean and Cuban revolutions' influence in Latin America, counter-revolutions and inter-American diplomacy, solidarity networks, women and gender in Latin America. She has previously completed a biography of Salvador Allende's daughter Beatrice Allende and her latest book is Towards a Global History of Latin America's Revolutionary Left. So you've done a lot of research on the two big Latin American revolutions that have captured public imagination when we talk about the Cold War, both Cuba and Chile. And what I want to do is take them both chronologically, so starting with Cuba. And before we talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is the thing that most captures public imagination, I think, about the Cuban Revolution, I want to talk about the Latin American states around Cuba and how did the other Latin American states respond to the Cuban Revolution when it occurred? Um, Yeah, thank you very much for the question and for having me on to talk about this. I think probably the first place to start when thinking about the impact of the Cuban revolution in Latin America, or the most obvious but um, important place to start is just to note that Latin America is obviously enormous, it's diverse, um, and it's impossible to generalize um, and to say that the Cuban revolution had one particular impact. Um, I think what we're learning most um, about recently is the internal repercussions of um, the Cuban revolution or the influence and, and the resonance it had within countries, within kind of local, at a local context. Um, um, but of course, it also had a kind of state level um, impact um, as well. Um, and again, here, Latin America is diverse. So there's not one kind of Latin American state narrative of, of, of how the Cuban revolution resonated throughout the region. We've got some states um, that were more open and curious to begin with. Um, others, particularly the dictatorial regimes in Central America and the Caribbean, um, that were vehemently opposed from the start to the Cuban um, revolution. But I mean, at a state level, um, you know, most governments um, had uh, by the very early 60s, even mid 59, I would say, most governments are wary of this new revolutionary regime in um, Cuba and what it's actually standing for and the impact it's going to have um, across the region. And so you have a series of inter-American meetings um, and um, uh, discussions, debate about what to do about the Cuban revolution um, in the hemisphere that the United States, of course, um, takes part um, in. Um, but is not necessarily managing or orchestrating everything that happens um, within the region, which is something that I've been interested in looking at. So um, I guess uh, right from the start, I'm going to kind of take the historian's uh, easy way out and say, what's the impact? Well, it's complicated. You know, <laughs> it, it, it depends on which Latin Americans we're talking about, uh, particularly what precise moment we're talking about, because things do shift. Um, and... Um, you know what what kind of impact or influence we're, we're we're interested in examining i think when a lot of people talk about cuba and the revolution and particularly from a cold war lens and particularly in public and popular imagination it's always talked about in relation to the soviets 
and the US as the two real driving actors. And I want to try and step away from that and see Cuba as its own independent entity that had its own foreign policy objectives and the other Latin American states that reacted to it as it's as having their own independent mind and their own independent foreign policy objectives. What were the efforts on Cuba's part to try and export the revolution to other parts of Latin America? How were they directed? Did they work a lot with local allies? And how did it shape Cuban foreign policy, the idea of exporting revolution to Latin America? Um, yeah, um, some excellent questions. Um, I think let me just pick up actually on um, just where you started off with, which is, can we understand the Cuban revolution um, from kind of outside perspectives? And I think you're absolutely right that trying to understand the Cuban revolution and even Cuba's international history um, by solely focusing on, on kind of its place within a superpower Cold War is, is really problematic. There's incredible new scholarship on the Cuban Revolution that has really challenged the idea of understanding the Cuban Revolution in relation to the US and the Soviet Union that's come out recently. Um, a brilliant new edited volume by um, um, Michael Bustamante and, and Jennifer Lamb that really um, tackles this idea of Cuba's, you know, the local Cuban dimensions of the Cuban Revolution. And that includes also Cuba's um, transnational and international foreign policy. So um, to get to the questions of, uh, you know, how did it uh, operate within Latin America and, and um, particularly in relation to revolutionary groups and, and the left, um, I think the Cubans might come back and say instantly, um, well, we didn't export revolution. Export is the wrong word here. Um, what we did was we supported revolutionary groups that asked for our support and asked for our help and assistance um and there's some there is there is a there is a good deal of um uh, that's right up in in that interpretation and um, what you have after 1959 is you know latin americans from all different parts of the region um, coming um, to Cuba um, to see what the revolution was about, to, to marvel at it, but often also to seek advice and seek support. And, and the Cubans, in terms of how do they work with local allies, um, they're working very often with those that are engaging with the Cuban revolution um, from the, the in, in the first instance, whether it be looking for training or, or, or logistical support. Um, now, this isn't the whole story, obviously. The Cubans also have their own agenda in Latin America. Um, and this, this begins relatively, um, maybe we should say, I mean, yes, for want of a better word, pragmatically in, in kind of having relations with any state that is willing to have relations with the Cuban um, state. Um, but as progressively Latin American states start breaking off diplomatic relations um, or imposing sanctions, um, Cuba's relationship with Latin America becomes, has to be done through non-state channels and it inevitably ends up, um, you know, being conducted um, on party to party relations um, and, you know, covertly with um, revolutionary and left-wing groups um, as well. Um, an enormously complex operation, which, you know, has to be, you know, just in terms of logistics of Cubans getting to Latin America, often having to be routed through, um, you know, Czechoslovakia or, you know, various kind of complex transit routes to Europe and back. Um, so they work with local allies, but they work with them 
in, in very difficult circumstances in, in terms of their ability to reach local allies and the ability of communication, the ability of cooperation is 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 constrained by by the the blockade and the and the limits and the isolation that Cuba faces very early on in the 60s. Um, um, I guess the other thing to say in how does it work with local allies is um, very often you find in the 60s particularly Cuba working with um, a number of different um, parties or revolutionary groups sometimes from the same country um, and this becomes very complicated for the Cubans in managing because they tended to deal with each of them separately um, um, on, on their own and sometimes I mean I'm, I'm most familiar with the Chilean case um, this this means that the Cubans find themselves almost tying themselves in knots trying to work separately with the different left-wing organizations only to find out that the left-wing organizations are essentially no know that each other is working with the Cubans so it's I mean it you know I've into when in my interviews with the Cubans they said they you know spent their time in Havana trying to keep these different left-wing organizations in different safe houses in Havana um only to find um that the Chileans had somehow found out that they were in Havana together and ended up drinking in a bar together you know um but um the the, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, this is an internationalist, it's a responsive, it's reactive to requests within the region. But um, the other part of the story is, as well is, is, is obviously, as I said, the Cuban kind of agenda in Latin America. And that is undeniably becomes, um, well, I mean, it changes, um, but at least in the, you know, in the mid 60s, um, there is one strand that aims to impose a kind of Cuban plan to create a revolutionary internationalist project and it's led most spearheaded most obviously by Che Guevara in Bolivia um, and that's where we see most obviously a kind of export um, type of uh, revolutionary model um, that is uh, that that is imposed um, in a sense imposed in in terms of um, leadership in terms of um, management organization um and of course it's 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 one of many but um very obviously one that does not go well um that fails um, you know spectacularly in the case of che Guevara's mission to bolivia i want to pick up on this idea that you gave earlier about cuba initially being willing to have relations with any state that would in turn have relations with cuba and while we should always sort of avoid doing alt history as we can only know what really actually happened. What do you think would have been Cuba's response had the Latin American states not chosen to cut off relations with Cuba? Would they have preferred to have continued to work with the existing state apparatuses in these countries, even if they weren't revolutionary or socialist, over these local actors, these uh, non-state actors? So was the, the Cubans' decision to back non-state actors driven out of a desperation or an inability to engage in normal forms of diplomacy, or was it always the long-term strategic aim of the country? Um, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Cuba isolated, wanted more revolutionary states like Cuba um, to, um, you know, to, to, to stand alongside, particularly when faced with, you know, the overwhelming power of the United States to the north. Um, but we see, I mean, in, in all cases, it's not Cuba that breaks relations, it's um, other states that break relations with Cuba. And in the case of Mexico, um, you know, which 
yes, it's you could argue as a, a kind of revolutionary state, but um, certainly not of the kind of socialist Soviet kind of aligned revolutionary state that emerges um, in Cuba by um, 61-62. Um, the Cubans maintain diplomatic relations um, um, throughout. Now, what they say is because Cuba, Mexico maintains relations with Cuba, Mexico, uh, Cuba will not intervene and support revolutionary groups in Cuba. In um, uh, And I mean, we know that that's not strictly um, as as kind of clear cut as perhaps um, the Cuban narrative on that um, suggests. Um, I think I think it's true also to say, I mean, the last countries to um, break relations um, in 64, Chile um, and Bolivia, Uruguay, um, the, the Cubans had state to state relations with those um, governments, but very limited, um, very kind of um, problematic. Um, in, in the case of um, Chile, you have a conservative government, essentially conservative government in, in place, in, in office, um, that does not sympathize or um, want to essentially engage in, in very constructive collaborative relations with Cuba. And Cuba is not seeing kind of the Chilean government as an, a natural ally either. So the natural allies that Cuba has within the region are left-wing parties, organization and revolutionary movements, trade union movements. Um, youth movements and it's so it's it, it's you know it, it's a bit of a I think had they not broken relations Cuba would have preferred to maintain a kind of a position in the hemisphere that is not isolated um, and to work within the international system but ultimately yes the the goal is to to, to support those sectors within the country that are going to bring about the kind of change that Cuba wants to see and, and the kind of support for Cuba that um, is, is possible, um, if that makes um, sense. I mean, there's, there is a shift and, I, and this is where I, I kind of am a bit reluctant to kind of talk about this in a static way. And I, when we're talking about Cuban foreign policy, what's so, so very obvious is that the Cuban foreign policy evolved and it changed over time. And, and so by the end of the 1960s, early 70s, um, the Cuban revolutionary uh, government um, shifts focus to to work more and more on state to state level um, uh, diplomacy, but it's ab only able to do this because um, Latin American states begin engaging with the Cuban revolution, either with trade or by opening diplomatic relations again, um, as happened, um, you know, going from about 1970 on to 1975, there's a big shift in which Cuba um, is able to operate in a, on a diplomatic sphere and this has real consequences just in kind of practical terms so that you know the Latin, the offices of the you know Latin American in in the foreign ministry closed down in the early 60s purely because there are no embassies um, left in Latin America um, but in the 1970s MINREX the foreign ministry begins to take more of a kind of control over not control but have, have a bigger part to play in in Cuba's relations with Latin America. That's really interesting. And I want to think about some of the thought systems that drove the Cuban government and how it thought about itself. Did the Cuban government think of itself not only as a socialist nation, but also a post-colonial nation? And how did that then affect its foreign policy reach, which extended all the way to places like Africa as well as Latin America? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think very obviously the answer is to whether it did is is yes. Um, it it um, the Cuban Castro um, and the revolutionary state consistently framed the revolution as um, the culmination of a hundred years struggle against um, colonialism and for independence that had begun in you know, 1868 um, with the Ten Years' War um, against Spanish colonial rule. Um, and this is embedded in, in the, the revolutionaries' discourse, um, you know, right from the beginning, in a sense, of, of Castro's um, battle against Batista in the, in the 50s, in, you know, in his defence against, you know, for, for the Moncada um, attack, he, he calls himself the intellectual author, um, sorry, he calls Jose Martí the intellectual author um, of his um, kind of uh, attack on Moncada um, and many of his um, companions um, see themselves as acting in the centenary of Jose Martí's um, birth. So um, Jose Martí being the, the great kind of, you know, independence hero um, that Cuba um, has. Um, so there's a very obvious and very um, explicit link made to the kind of anti-colonial struggle and and in the case of Cuba we, we have to recognize that obviously this is very recent really um, compared to other Latin American states that acquired their independence you know towards the beginning of the 19th century Cuba's independence happens really quite late and it also has to fight against US protectorate US um, kind of neo-colonial um, system that is imposed um, right from the founding of the Cuban Republic in 1902 through the Platt Amendment. Um, and that's only abrogated in 1934. So in the case of Cuba, it, it, the, the kind of struggle uh, for independence is, is really quite recent and quite, um, and, and quite uh, raw, quite present in, in kind of public memory, popular memory, as well as in the minds of the leaders of the new revolutionary um, state. But yes, this does have an an enormous impact in the way in which it relates to other parts of the world um, it, it, in, in terms of its sympathy, for example, with the FLN in, in Algeria, right from, you know, right from before even the FLN's victory um, against the French in 1961, 1962, the Cubans are providing support and assistance to the FLN, um, not in terms of socialist brotherhood but in terms of um two small nations fighting you know for you know independence and dignity respect i think is the way they they term it in on the international um um stage and then of course through the tree continental which is an incredible kind of international um organization not founded by the cubans i mean it's important it builds on afro asian solidarity committee that existed before but really kind of transformed into a global anti-colonial um, uh, forum um, organization in the mid 60s um, and that um, you know puts forward a, a very kind of very interesting um, um, particular anti-colonial vision um, for um, third worldism very different from the non-aligned movement um, for example. When we talk about Cuba's international foreign policy while much of it was driven in the early period by attempts to support revolutionary movements, we see a shift towards a form of more peaceful political solidarity towards the later era of Cuba's foreign policy, with things like its medical internationalism, sending doctors overseas to countries in order to aid them and develop them. 
what effect did that have on both Cuban's foreign policy and its international standing within particularly the global south when it shifted towards these more peaceful forms of political engagement with the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it has a, it has a, um, you know, it's a, it's a major feature of Cuba's international standing today, of course, isn't it? Um, and tens of thousands of doctors um, abroad, Cuban doctors abroad, but also tens of thousands who have been trained in Cuba, um, medics, doctors who have been trained in Cuba from um, around the world um, as well. Um, so this is really what we think of in, in terms of Cuba's internationalism. Um, today is this, um, you know, medical uh, internationalism, um, civil assistance um, as well, um, also in education. But I, I guess I would maybe take issue a little bit with the idea of a decisive shift from one to the other of different types of foreign policy or different uh, types of internationalism. Um, the peaceful political solidarity, I think, as you mentioned it, is is there right from the beginning. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's there right from the beginning of, you know, the more radical days of the Cuban revolution's support for guerrilla insurgency and, 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 and revolutionary, you know, overthrow of existing states. Um, so, you know, to cite the Algerian example that I gave earlier, yes, uh, the Cubans provided a certain amount of arms at the end of 1961, beginning of 1962, but they also sent um, uh, doctors and dentists to Algeria, um, really, uh, you know, one of the first kind of major medical internationalist um, missions um, that Cuba in, engaged in. Um, they offer, the Cuban state offers earthquake relief to Peru in mid-1970s that involves sending construction workers, public health officials, in the same mission that also included um, political agents and intelligence officials as well. So they were mixed together. And, and when we think of Cuba's relations with the, the Sandinistas in the, in the 1980s um, and the Sandinista government, um, Yes, there was military support. Yes, there was support for intelligence, but there were also, you know, and, and in Angola as well, there were doctors, there were teachers, there were um, cultural, you know, dipl diplomats, writers. Um, so the kind of peaceful political solidarity has always been there in the Cuban vision of internationalism um, that and, and its foreign policy that it has carried overseas. Um, what changes, and I, I guess there would be two real shifts that I see. One is, as I've mentioned, at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, a shift towards uh, kind of focusing on state-to-state -state relations and a, a de-emphasis on the guerrilla struggle. Um, and um, on the other hand, in the 1990s, where I think Castro stands up and very publicly says that he recognises armed struggle is, is not the most appropriate path to change anymore um, and renounces kind of that, that side of the Cuban foreign policy mission very kind of very, very explicitly. Let's conclude our discussion because I think we've done we've done a very good discussion of Cuba without immediately mentioning the Soviet Union. But we've also got to remember that it was a socialist state that found itself strongly connected to the eastern bloc during the cold war how did cuba fit into soviet foreign policy during the cold war both before and then after the cuban missile crisis 
And then also, how did Cuba relate to the other minor nations of the Eastern Bloc in Eastern Europe, thinking of itself both as a post-colonial nation, but also a socialist nation? Um, again, um, very, very good questions, huge questions in a way. And I, and I make, might kind of just preface my answer by saying, um, you know, I'm myself, I'm not an expert on Soviet foreign policy. So my insights are more from, you know, the excellent work that others have produced on, on these um, um, topics. But I mean, I think, where does Cuba fit into Soviet foreign policy? I think uh, initially uh, Cuba presents itself, the revolution is a surprise. Um, it's greeted with um, interest and then increasing enthusiasm um, as an example of a, a revolution that, that has come about you know, spontaneously almost without the Soviet support, without Soviet direct um, intervention. There's no Red Army that needs to, um, you know, impose or help impose a kind of socialist revolutionary state here. But then uh, perhaps growing frustration um, uh, with the unpredictable nature of the Cuban revolution or its idiosyncratic kind of um, approaches to socialist development um, in the 60s um, and also concern over uh, Cuba's um, more overt and, um, uh, shall we say, kind of risky um, support for revolutionary uh, movements and, and revolution in, in Latin America in particular, particularly in the view of this being the United States' um, sphere of influence. Um, and I think the Cuban Missile Crisis um, very much marks uh, a, a shift in this perspective in that after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets are, are much more reluctant um, to support revolutionary um, kind of activity within the hemisphere um, and much more uh, willing to recognize that this is the, you know, a US sphere of influence. Now, that's not to say the Soviets don't support revolution in Latin America. And I think for a long time, we've been um, a little bit, bit um, well, historians have fallen into the trap of saying that Cubans supported revolution and the Soviets didn't. Um, I think, you know, the Soviets um, have very long-standing ties and very intimate and very, you know, close relations with the communist parties of um, Latin America, which are supporting revolution, but have a different view of how revolution will come about um, and when it will come about, which is, that, which is to say, um, you know, slower, more through institutional um, mechanisms through um, work, through mass organizations, working class movements. Um, and the Soviets do continue that. They, they just believe that the Cubans are, um, you know, uh, and the Cuban aligned left wing movements are operating um, in, a, in a more risky and, and kind of counterproductive ways in, in, in cases. Um, but, the, but the Soviets don't, the Soviets don't, um, stop all support for the Cuban um, ventures in Latin America. And in fact, what we're learning more about today is actually the Soviet bloc's um, support and logistical help and for much of Cuba's Latin American revolutionary activity. Um, I've got a new edited um, um, volume coming out um, that I've edited along with Alberto Martin. Um, and um, there's a wonderful chapter by Mikhail um, Zurek in there that looks at the Czech intelligence operations um, um, with regards to supporting 
Cuba and Cuba's relations with Latin America, in, essentially in helping with the transit um, of thousands, more, well, at least 2000 um, Latin Americans um, between Latin America and Cuba to receive training and then back to host countries. Um, and all of this with the Soviet approval and, and the Soviet knowledge. So um, I think there's there's a tendency that we, we have to think of, you know, um, the Cubans and the Soviets working completely in different directions with regards to the revolution in Latin America. But there's probably a lot more that we need to understand about what the relationship is between Soviet and Cuban um, operations in, in that in that perspective. I think this initial enthusiasm for a ideologically aligned partner suddenly emerging somewhere in the world, followed by a developing frustration that that doesn't mean that you have 100% control over everything that that partner does, is a consistent feature for both the US and the USSR throughout the Cold War on both sides. And I think it's an important reminder that these minor states that we might call them or not or aligned states didn't mean that they were puppet states and that they purely did whatever the the poles of the two superpowers demanded of them, but rather that they were their own independent actors with their own foreign policy objectives, their own domestic policy objectives, and that they often went against the wishes of the senior partner in the coalition in order to achieve those. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, I, I, I realised I didn't pick up on your question about the kind of... the other countries within the Eastern Europe and the Soviet bloc and it's their relations with Cuba. Um, I mean, I think what the Czech kind of example I gave you suggests is that actually these aren't minor um, um, states. Um, actually, the Soviet bloc works as a, as a whole in, in terms of its relationship with Cuba and with Latin America, in, in which actually like the Czechoslovakia becomes absolutely pivotal um, to the Soviet bloc's relations with the region, for example. Um, um, but in other cases, um, you know, other states within the Soviet bloc or in Eastern Europe play other very important roles, either in terms of trade or in terms of um, uh, intelligence or in, in terms of logistical support. Um, and they each have their own relations with Cuba and with um, Latin American states within a kind of sub within the soviet bloc's approach but um it's interesting i think as i said i think we need far more on 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 this much more research on on the relationships the different relationships between the, the eastern european states had with with latin america and particularly with cuba so let's shift now to the other revolution that i think captured public imagination during the cold war uh, salvador allende in in chile I first want to ask, how did the rest of Latin America react to the victory of Allende? Because I think we know enough about how the US fought about the revolution. But how did the rest of Latin America react and how did Havana react in particular, seeing the emergence of another fellow socialist nation in Latin America? Um, I think, I mean, I come back to my um, point at the beginning, um, my cop-out point, but an important point, which is... Um, different Latin Americans reacted in different ways to um, uh, Allende's election. I mean, this is very different from the Cuban revolution. Um, it's the election of a coalition, a left-wing coalition, and um, a head of state who has been a very prominent um, pol politician, um, senator and uh, um, congressman for, for decades. Um, when Allende is elected, it's obviously it's his fourth run at the presidency. Um, and um, 
you know, in, in that respect, um, it's viewed, um, it's viewed with far less kind of, um, shall we say, alarm than or concern than, than the Cuban revolution um, had been um, before. Um, in Havana, um, there is jubilation, there's celebration, there's surprise. I don't think that the Cubans or Castro didn't ever think that Allende would ultimately win. Um, as I said, this is his fourth presidential run. Um, and so um, there's there's a great amount of surprise. I think Castro, one of those I interviewed said, said that his, his response was, the miracle happened, you know, he, he won. Um, but then very quickly, this shifts to um, serious concern and preoccupation of the extent to which Allende is going to be able to govern and if even he's going to be able to be inaugurated um, in um, uh, in subsequently to, to his actual victory. Um, the Cubans are very skeptical of the possibility of a revolutionary path being able to be um, made within the constitutional system that exists, which is what Allende's project and what the, the, the Popular Unities project was about, which was revolutionary change within the constitutional system via the ballot box. Um, and for the Cuban revolutionary state, there's a great degree of skepticism of whether this can this is going to be allowed to happen basically by the by the right, by traditional establishment um, and sectors that are um, hostile to revolutionary um, change. Um, so, so there's there's um, there's there's celebration, but there's also instant kind of concern and also a willingness to help, but a, a recognition that Cuban intervention or Cuban involvement might undermine or or endanger the Popular Unities project, this electoral project. Um, so, I think Castro very quickly says, you know, move cautiously, don't re-establish relations quickly with Cuba. Um, you know let Cuba be the kind of um, the, the the revolutionary state that anti-communists are worried about rather than Allende. Um, so there's an effort to learn from uh, Cuba's own experience of, of being kind of isolated very early um, on. And, and, and I think, you know, in, in terms of the Latin American um, system, I mean, as I said, different Latin Americans are react in different ways. I mean, I, I think for, for the Chileans who are coming into office in the Popular Unity uh, Coalition, but also diplomats who are um, working with Allende, there's there's the, the initial big fears, and I think similarly to the Cubans, is not just the US possibility of US intervention, but the possibility of hostility from, um, you know, South America's two big um, kind of regional hegemons, Brazil and Argentina, and, and the Chileans work very quickly to try and neutralise, this is the word, they neutralise the, the threat of hostility from Argentina, Chile's big rival, you know, on the, you know, across the border, um, um, and pay very close attention to the Brazilian dictatorship's um, um, position, um, which is not overtly hostile, but um, very quickly there's evidence for the Chilean foreign ministry to see that um, the dictatorship is 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 kind of, you know, operating in ways against that that will undermine the the Allende government and and supporting opponents support supporting opponents to the new to the new to the new popular unity coalition. You've also written a book on Salvador Allende's daughter Beatrice Allende. 
who played a significant role in Allende's government, but is maybe someone who people don't know much about if they only have a cursory knowledge of the Chilean revolution in the time under Allende. So can you explain to listeners what role she played in the Allende government and why she is such an interesting historical figure that you decided to focus your book on? Yes, of course. Um, yeah, this is um, Beatrice has been my focus really for, for the last decade or so um, since writing um, my first book on the inter-American Cold War. Um, and I, I, was, I was drawn to her for, for a number of different reasons. I mean, firstly, um, she plays this really important role, as you say, in her father's administration, but it's an offstage role. It's a role that you hear about in passing, in memoirs, uh, um, as uh, important, but that no one had ever really explored and investigated in depth. I mean, the, the simple answer is what role she played is she was her father's private secretary. But that doesn't really tell us or, um, a great deal about the extent or the scope of her role. So um, she played as a private secretary. She um, was involved in a number of different um, uh, areas that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a kind of purely secretarial role. Um, she was her father's, one of her father's key interlocutors with the Cuban revolutionary state. She um, went between Santiago um, and Havana um, with, you know, private messages from her father to um, the Cuban state um, right at the beginning to request support for um, his building up his uh, his own kind of bodyguard, a, a kind of security detail, um, because he didn't trust the security apparatus and the uh, of the of the Cuban um, state. Um, so many talk about her as a kind of parallel foreign advisor, you know, separate from the foreign ministry, but someone that he could rely on to um, to maintain relations with the Cuban revolutionary government, but also with revolutionary movements from Latin America as well. Um, she plays roles also in security, as I've alluded to, in terms of um, not managing, but facilitating the establishment of um, a bodyguard and an escort um, right from the beginning. But then later on, um, she's involved in um, working with others or at least coordinating and, and facilitating meetings with others um, to think through and plan for what might happen in the event um, of a coup, of a military coup, which was seen as something, a very um, obvious possibility um, much before September the 11th um, in 1973. She was a bridge also to youth movements um, and particularly radical revolutionary um, movements on the, on the kind of far left, um, if, if you like, um, for her father. So her father's um, government and the popular unity coalition for example didn't include the mir the, the movement of the revolutionary left but beatrice maintained very close relations with the mir and with it with its leaders um, and so could convene meetings between the mir and her father um, but also help that um relationship endure despite kind of shift tensions and fraction fact you know factions that appeared on the left and you know there would some be some that argued that um you know, she maintained those links um, to the detriment of Allende's ability to move to the centre or at least to move and consolidate his popular unity coalition and, and ignore the kind of far left sectors that were, were calling for kind of more immediate or more radical or even kind of armed um, revolutionary, you know, um, movements 
in 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 response to the to the reactions and the rights mobilization against the government so um you know within that one role of a private secretary um you know to her, she was she was absolutely central she was right at the heart of of the presidency she was a confidant to her father um and she offers a, a vision of or an ability to examine the presidency in a, in a in a in a different light i think to what has been examined before but i mean beyond her role in his administration in her father's administration I mean, she 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 was a remarkable woman who lived um an incredible life in a in in just a very short a, a short life and she died when she was 35 she died of suicide in 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 cuba um but this remarkable life in in this short life she was she trained as a medical doctor as a pediatrician as a public health um official um and she worked as a teacher um, and as a pediatrician in in havana's oh, sorry in santiago's university she also uh, was involved in covert um uh, revolutionary operations in bolivia um although mostly as on the rear guard in providing logistical support safe houses um and coordinating training um, of um, a number of uh, revolutionaries who aimed to reignite um, Che Guevara's failed mission in Bolivia um, in the late 1960s. And she traveled to Cuba. She became very close to the Cuban revolutionary regime in the late 1960s. Um, she herself desperately wanting to follow in Che's footsteps herself and, and actually go to Bolivia to um, fight like um, Che, um, but was denied that opportunity um, to do so. Um, and then after the coup in 1973, she becomes really one of the central figures of the global solidarity campaign um, with those resisting the dictatorship back in Chile. Um, and she takes on this role of um, and kind of figurehead for the resistance, um, an heir apparent to her father, um, but also um, someone in Havana who's coordinating funds, solidarity funds, who's managing kind of the publication of a, a very important information bulletin. Um, and so for me, she was interesting because she allowed me to explore and investigate the, the rise and fall of uh, the revolutionary left project from the late 50s to the mid 70s. Um, and to, to really examine what it what the Cold War meant, what the impact the Cold War had on an individual life, what was the human, uh, what were the human repercussions of the Cold War, um, and in in Beatrice's case, they had a very tragic um, impact on her personally um, and her life. I think this focus on the idea of what role did the Cold War play on an individual human life is a very important one because we often speak about the Cold War in terms of states, and we forget the individuals who make up those states and the profound impact they had on their lives. So I think it's really great that you've done this work to bring attention to this figure who otherwise has very limited scholarship about the role that she played. You've brought that to light for the rest of us in the academic community who might be studying these issues in a much more broad sense. And you talk a lot about her interaction with youth movements across Latin America and what role did those youth movements play during the Cold War in the foundation of Latin American states? Um, yeah, so um, um, I think I think you're absolutely right, by the way, in, in saying kind of kind of more traditional older scholarship of the Cold War in Latin America did tend to look at states um, and kind of was rather top down. I mean, one of the most exciting things about 
the field today is really a decentering de of um, our efforts to understand um, the, you know, the the Cold War period and, and what really was at stake in many of the ideological and conflicts and struggles that took place in, in the 20th century. Um, um, but in, in this respect, um, you know, youth, youth movements um, have to be there right at the centre of um, our understanding of political struggles, cultural struggles, um, to determine the future of um, the region. Um, and I'd say that Latin American youth movements didn't necessarily, on the one hand, didn't necessarily play very different roles to they played in other parts of the world, um, you know, um, very much as in Europe or in the United States or in, in other parts um, of um, the global south and Africa and Asia, youth movements were um, very central in their role in mobilizing for change, in questioning existing um, hierarchical structures or the existing order, particularly in the global 60s, in the, in the 1960s, of, of, of questioning um, structures of government, of questioning gender relations, of um, pushing back against um, the established um, yeah, the established systems um, in place. Um, perhaps what's different about uh, youth movements in Latin America is that very often the costs of that mobilization are, um, are much higher than um, perhaps in, in, in other contexts. Um, and particularly in the global 60s, a, a lot of the youth mobilization that takes place um, is uh, you know, occurring in situations where you have authoritarian regimes, for example, um, in, in the case of Brazil in the, in the, in the late 60s, youth movement and mobilization, um, the consequences of youth mobilization were, you know, were, were, were enormous, um, leading to kind of death, imprisonment, um, torture um, as well. So you have significant um, mobilization and, and, and a kind of questioning of the existing order and a push for change, but um, at at, at very um, um, significant costs. Um, I think maybe the maybe the other thing I'd say about youth movements, in, and this is again going back to the question of diversity and complexity of Latin America, is that I think there's a tendency. I think as for Cold War historians and for for many of us looking at the global sixties or looking at um, kind of revolutionary movements to to think always in terms of youth movements and their association with the left or their association with pushing for revolutionary change or at least opposing um, the, 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 the status quo. But there were youth movements on the right, there were youth movements, particularly um, Catholic youth movements, very, very significant, um, who played, they played a very significant role um, in, in, in all different types of directions, whether it be kind of conservative Catholic movements or kind of youth movements associated with liberation theology, um, which became so important um, in political circles and, and social circles throughout Latin America from the end of the 60s and, and into the 70s. So when we're talking about youth, moment, youth movements, I think one of the things that we're learning more about was the heterogeneity, the diversity of youth movements that existed during the Cold War in Latin America, rather than simply equating it always with kind of the left and, and kind of um, the, the, the impulse for kind of some kind of revolutionary change. I think that's a really interesting take for the future of how we continue to study these movements because there is always a very strong leaning towards representations of the left in Latin America 
as coming from an organic revolutionary base and the right being a state-led, institution-led entity. But there was obviously mass mobilization on both sides and I think it's it misses something of the picture to not understand the, the mass mobilization that comes from from both sides of the Cold War. And I mean, sorry, just to go back to the Beatrice book, I mean, you know, when we, I mean, I've, I've written about her as a member of the kind of Chile's revolutionary generation that came of age in, in the shadow of the Cuban revolution. But, you know, what's what what's very apparent and what's very, was is very interesting to note about this revolutionary generation, although it captures our imagination and it's what we think of in a sense of the global 60s. When you're looking at the university system in Chile in the, in the 1960s, right up until 1969, it's not the revolutionary left that um, is in the majority or even, um, the majority on the left, but it's the Christian Democrats who um, hold the federation, who hold power in, in, in terms of student federations, student elections, student politics for much of that decade. And I think um, what's really, I think would be really interesting is to, to pay much more attention to the different um, types of youth movements and what they're militating for. Undoubtedly, um, it, this is a moment where youth sees itself as a protagonist in, in kind of a country's future, in, in terms of the future of the region, in, in terms of future, the way in which the world operates. But um, different youth have different ideas of where they want to see the world going. I think this is even the case in the public imagination of the American youth movement in the 60s, in that the majority of American college students were not opposed to the Vietnam War and sometimes that shocks us when we think back in comparison to our public imagination is but really should it given that you know the majority of university students in the 60s were from an upper middle class or middle class background and therefore would not tend to be the sort of ideal base for the revolutionary left it's only the fact that revolutionary movements emerged out out of these student movements and these youth movements that we then sort of post facto reimagine our, our idea of what the youth cohort of the 60s was made up of so that everyone becomes part of this hegemonic actor that saw itself as, as suddenly taking part in history but of course the vast majority of people were not involved in that group it's just that that group comes to dominate our public perception because of the, the strength and force that they had in changing uh, changing international society and what role did women's movements play in, in Latin American politics? And were they similarly spread across the political spectrum? Was there women's mobilization both on the left and the right of Latin American politics? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think women, you know, like men, uh, you know, you have women of all different political persuasions um, and, um, and thought that acted and fought for change on all sides of the Cold War struggle. Um, I think... Um, you know, and this is something that really was essential. Um, something that was drew me to, to looking at Beatrice was with the opportunity to look at what the experience of a woman revolutionary was in, during the Cold War and, and more specifically how um, gender um, played out um, with regards to revolutionary struggles, but also um, how it affected um, a woman's ability to um, participate or um, take part um, in the kind of revolutionary projects, political projects that um, were in train at the time. Um, so, so yes, you have women's movements um, on 
all sides <laughs> um, of the Cold War. And, and even on this, on, on that, I'd say, I wouldn't say both sides because I think it's it's actually much more multipolar, actually, the Cold War in, in Latin America than a kind of two-sided binary um, story. Um, there's been some excellent work on women's um, movements and mass mobilization against, and, and also covert resistance against the Batista dictatorship in Cuba, for example, by Michelle Chase, who has really inserted women's movements into the story of the Cuban revolution in, in an important way that really, forces us to rethink the the narrative of the 26th of July movement and its um you know and its overthrow of Batista. Um, um, there's been some excellent and, and amazing work um, looking at women's movements on the right. Um, Margaret Power's um, work both on the Chilean right-wing women but also on transnational right-wing um, women's movements that um, lob lobbied against communism, um, that um, organized um, marches, um, that organized collaboration and assistance between, for example, Brazil, Chile, and the United States in the 1960s. So women drawing on their kind of anti-communist and, and, and anti-revolutionary um, um, involvement um, in Brazil and, and taking the lessons and, and applying them um, elsewhere. Um, there's also been some really, really, but I'm, I'm very inspired by some of the work that's going on related to women's movements and feminism in Central America in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, the role, the intersection between feminist and socialist um, organizing and activism um, at a grassroots level that occurred in Central America. I'm thinking of a fantastic chapter by Diana Carolina Sierra Becara, which is in a new volume on on making the revolutionary left or making the left that's just appeared, um, that looks at El Salvadorian um, women's organizations and, and how, you know, for, for, for the women's movements in, in El Salvador, socialist revolution and, and feminist um, activism were part and parcel of the same um, revolutionary project. Um, again, I think we need far more far more research on on looking at women's roles within the Cold War, which have been, you know, largely ignored and marginalized for, for far too long. Um, and I think what we'll see is obviously heterogeneity, but also protagonism and, and really significant um, 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 roles that were played by women um, um, in, in the Cold War. I, I know I'm talking far too much here, but um, maybe just one other thing I think to say is that What's interesting is if you look at the 1940s, perhaps the moment of kind of popular front years and the democratic spring in, in, in Latin America, what's very clear, at least in the Chilean case, and I think more broadly as well, is that the kind of unity and, and the identity of women's movements as movements fighting for women across classes and across the political spectrum um, were really undermined by the Cold War as well. So the Cold War divides women's movements that had been founded and constructed and very powerful on the uh, national stage, for in, in the Chilean case at least, um, and, and, and really kind of creates tensions and um, problems within them that mean that it's very hard to have a kind of cross-party or cross-ideological um, women's movement that, that stands aside or straddles the Cold War divide from the nineteen mid-1940s onwards. I think that's really, really interesting. And I think we have to remember that while the Cold War was going on, not all struggles 
that people engaged in were engaged in in terms of socialism versus capitalism but also there were struggles in terms of gender equality in terms of legal recognition access to healthcare, education that cut across the cold war and the aims of those states so how do we understand the women's movement as advocating for aims of of women's issues in particular were many of them reformist in terms of not trying to say overthrow or institute a new form of government but rather to change what existed or because of the cold war did they inevitably end up shifting into a revolutionary camp because of the forces of reaction that were laid out because of the cold war for the women, uh, we, it depends on the women's movements that you're talking about. But I mean, for many women who are fighting for revolution, they don't really come to revolutionary movements through women's movements. They come through political parties, just like their male counterparts. So they come through political youth wings of political uh, left wing organizations uh, rather than necessarily coming through um, women's movements to um, join in um revolutionary projects I mean, it, it's slightly different when we're talking about south america and, it, and and central america and partly because of the chronological difference that takes place as, as well and um, so you have the much later central american revolutions um taking place after um, second wave feminist kind of movement um in the 60s and the 1970s um but also because of the very uh the the kind of activism of women uh, who are resisting and having to organize um, against dictatorships and authoritarian governments and, and the violence, human rights abuses that are occurring in that Central American um, space. Um, I'm not sure that answers your question. Um, I find it really interesting, this idea that maybe thinking about things in terms of an explicitly separate women's movement is more of American slash UK or, or Western European context rather than thinking about them as women who are mobilized into the core of political parties. I think that's a really interesting contextual difference. But but so but for, for me really what's what's really important is that the Cold War and, and issues of gender or issues of education as you were saying is actually not I mean yes it's separate from the Cold War but it's very hard to escape the Cold War that exists um, during this um, period. And actually, if you look at, particularly at anti-communism, right? If you look at um, the anti-communist uh, project, um, which wasn't just an anti, it wasn't um, about the status quo, but it had its own particular um, dynamic and, and active um, project. Um, you know, the more we're learning about that right-wing counter-revolutionary anti-communist um, wave that took over South American governments in in the mid from the mid 60s um, into the 70s and 80s is that it was specifically about fears about um, revolutionary projects of jet on, on on in in relation to gender in terms of morality in terms of sexuality that didn't necessarily equate to what the left were doing but was a constructed fear of the idea of revolution upending hierarchy hierarchies and gender norms and, and tr the traditional family that you know that really kind of helped um underpin a lot of the you know the the the, the reach and, and also the severity of, of some of these um projects they're actually they're not separate but they're actually really quite intertwined um 
the more we look at it. And I, I'm thinking obviously of, of um, Ben Cowan's um, fantastic work, of Valeria Manzano's work on gender on and, and, and the Cold War and how, how they really, really were interrelated and inextricably linked. So I want to take the last 20 minutes and look at your process of studying the Cold War and studying these Latin American movements. So what is it like researching the Latin American left and particularly in the cases of Chile and Cuba? What are the unique difficulties that arise while trying to do your research? Um, I think in the case of Cuba, um, I think it's it's well known um, kind of difficulties in, in terms of the restrictions of um archival access or, or <laughs> limits on uh, to what um, historians can actually access in archives, what archives uh, are open. Although I think this is changing and I think one of the most exciting things um, has been the gradual opening up of archives in recent years that I have I've not myself been able to, um, to, to take advantage of um, yet. Um, but this means that people who are researching um, the left or the, the state or what it, you know revolutionary groups within Cuba have tended to go and look at um, published materials um, or use oral history interviews um, to, or to be creative about how they're looking at state and society um, in in terms of the types of sources that they're using. Um, in the case of Chile, um, what are some of the challenges? Well, I think one of the first challenges is that there's not one left, but there are many lefts, um, and that each of the different parties has slightly different um, archival record that exists. And there are imbalances really in terms of access and in terms of the type and source material that is available. Um, strangely or perhaps not strangely but um very obviously there seems to be much more on the mir and the revolutionary left in terms of archival online archival sources and and material um then for example on the socialist party which doesn't have a very extensive archive um of itself but you know again oral history interviews have been important memoirs um and in the case of chile um you know other there are plentiful archives you know whether it be the national archives, whether it be private foundations, whether it be university collections or, um, you know, um, left wing organizations efforts to actually compile their own archives and, and collections to, to, to construct an archival memory um, of their own activism as well. So um, it's I think in the case of Cuba, the difficulties relate to the limits and in Chile, perhaps they relate to the, you know, the, the vast um, opportunities but also perhaps the imbalance between different sectors of the left that exist. Did the archives in Chile survive the Pinochet regime fully intact in terms of the ones that are left over from the Allende government or were there any efforts to censor or change the archives or is it a broadly open situation where you have most of the surviving record? Um, there's m much more than you would um, think. Um, um, I mean, there were there were two. I mean, there two, there, there are a number of gaps um, that that are, are obvious. Um, one of them is kind of the records of the Allende presidency um, and the government, which um, I think my understanding is that a, a big portion were, were either burnt or destroyed um, in the immediate aftermath of the coup, or just before it, in an effort to protect 
um, sources and protect um, kind of the government against the military that were, were coming in um, and to protect um, individuals within the Allende project as well. Um, there's also um, quite a lot of evidence to suggest that that, it, that documents were shipped to Cuba and that there may be a collection of records about the Allende presidency in Cuba that still exist, although I, I have no idea of where or where they might be. Um, there, I think other things that were destroyed were, you know, things like student newspapers, pamphlets, and ephemera that were burnt in raids of university um, buildings by the military, but also by individuals who feared the military and, and therefore kind of chose to destroy um, evidence that could be used um, against them. Um, and party documents and papers, you know, were scattered um, and are sometimes in the hands of individuals rather than a kind of central party um, archives. But um, but that's not to say that, you know, documents did not survive. And I think, I mean, Chile, you know, pre-COVID um, or post-COVID um, is, is awash with um, an incredible amount of source material to work on the past, not just on the Allende years, obviously, but um, going you know, back and forward. Um, and this is at all, you know, levels of society. I mean, some of the most exciting work has recently on Chile and the left has been done um, partly at grassroots level. So looking at the experience of the dictatorship for grassroots communities, that's Alison Brewery's incredible work, or, and this is really important actually um, for the whole of Latin America, um, looking beyond the capital and so so many of our histories of the cold war in latin america whether they be state-centered or non-state-centered tend to revolve around the capital cities um, and so there are a, a number of historians have started to kind of push back against that and to try and understand what was happening in other regions um, around the country um, as well i'd like to dig more deeply into what's the strength and the breadth of the role that interviews and oral histories play in your personal method and the wider method of studying the left in latin america and does that also lend us a sense of urgency because obviously that generation that were politically active in the 60s are now starting to reach old age and are we going to start losing our sort of access to that historical past if we don't capture it uh, in the next few years yeah i mean it's already happened unfortunately and i was i was very fortunate to be able to talk to i'm not i mean a lot of the people that i was able to interview in cuba and in chile have unfortunately passed away um since i interviewed them so i, I was very fortunate to be you know really trying to talk to them and and, and ask questions um at the right time i mean it oral histories interviews have played an enormous role in in my own research um and i i think they play a role in in it as sources for the voices that are marginalized or invisibilized by you know official state archives that um exist um i mean in the case of cuba what was really quite fascinating and there i mean i think the archives do exist but whether you know whether we get access or who gets access is, is open, you know, it's a big um, question that, that still remains. But what was really, really interesting was how keen the individuals I spoke to were to tell their story. And they were keen to tell their story because they knew that they were coming to the end of their lives. And they were also very concerned that their part in history and their perspective was not necessarily being written about in the history books. Um, 
I when I went to interview one particular um, Cuban intelligence official, um, it was interesting. I, I walked in and he had a whole load of documents and books on, on a table and right in the center was Kissinger's memoirs, which you wouldn't expect. Right. Um, but he'd taken a highlighter and he'd highlighted all the passages that related to Cuba's involvement in Chile and his particular role. And he said, this is wrong. <laughs> you know, I want to tell my side of the story. Um, so, yes, there is a danger that these histories are, are vanishing, but there was also, for me, I was able to benefit from an opportunity, the opportunity of, 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 of listening to these, um, you know, people to tell their perspective, tell their side of the story um, on, on the past. I think particularly when it comes to marginalized communities, particularly when it comes to women um, who are very often invisible in, in in all sorts of different types of archives, particularly part of the roles they had, I, like Beatrice, who was always present, but never a named participant in any of the meetings. Um, I think it's absolutely a vital way of rescuing um, different perspectives on the past. Near the turn of the millennium, there was a big push amongst the historical community to save and collect the last accounts of those veterans who fought in the Second World War as their population was starting to age out and I think maybe this should be a spur for a similar facet in the left in Latin America particularly where we lack the archives that those stories need to be captured and contained before they are before they're lost permanently from the historical record yeah absolutely what would you say in the past decade has changed about our understanding of Latin America in the Cold War and what do you feel the future of Latin American Cold War studies are well, so a lot, a lot has changed in the last decade. Um, it's been very exciting um, to see um, the way in which the field has evolved and the different kind of questions, the different types of research that have been taking um, place. Um, I think um, how have things changed. I think the big emphasis has been on decentering um, traditional um, or older existing understandings of the Cold War in Latin America, decentering away from uh, a story of the Cold War as being shorthand for US intervention in Latin America. Um, so away from kind of the centrality of the US without ignoring the, the, the importance the US played, away from elites um, and, you know, in the case of Cuba, for example, away from Castro and, and towards understanding of, um, you know, other factors that led to the revolution and, and others who um, shaped the revolutionary state, away from capital cities, as I've already mentioned, and away from simplistic binary interpretations of the Cold War. So a real decentering away from the idea of this simply being about left versus right, but thinking about the lefts in plural, the rights in plural. Um, and really, I think there, there'll be much more on, on kind of the center and, and other actors as well that were involved in um, struggles to determine kind of the future shape of, of the countries um, in the region. Um, in terms of the future, I mean, I, I see actually this decentering um, really accelerating um, in the last couple of years, actually, um, not necessarily the work being conducted in the last years, but in 2020 alone, there were four excellent new edited volumes on Latin America and the Cold War, which I think take it in, in new directions. Um, 
you know, one on uh, Latin America and the Global Cold War, edited by Thomas Fields, Stella Krapp and Vanny Patina, which really looked at Latin America's relationship with the third world, with the global south, and, and tried to kind of put Latin America in a kind of more global perspective. One, I've mentioned Kevin Young on the making of the revolution, histories of Latin American left, um, which really, really um, start to grapple, really, the essays grapple with issues of class, gender and race. Um, and the intersection between kind of revolution and um, those issues. Um, there's been fantastic edited volume on science, technology and the environment edited by Andrew Chastain and Timothy Lorick. Um, and then one on health and medicine in the Cold War edited by Anne Emmanuel Byrne and Raul Necochea um, Lopez. And I, I'm mentioning them all explicitly because I feel like there, there's some really, really phenomenal new scholarship and new scholars that are working on the Cold War, but they're not working in terms of US-Soviet relations anymore. They're working in terms of how the Cold War tensions and conflicts arose from within the region, but also how they affected everyday life and society as well. And I think that is where the future um, looks brightest and, and, and really exciting, I think, in the field. Tanya, thanks so much for a really interesting conversation. And I think we've done our part here, hopefully, to bring a bit more colour and nuance to what was occurring in Latin America during the Cold War in an approach that wasn't just centred around the US and Soviet interventions, but on the people and the states that existed there as their own independent actors. So thank you so much for coming and sharing all of your knowledge about Latin America. It's It's been a really great discussion. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. You can follow me on Twitter at jrbm underscore irtheory. Be sure to follow the podcast. We release new episodes every fortnight on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and the LSE iPlayer. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Like, share the podcast, and leave a comment or a review so we can hear your thoughts about the episode. Again, I'm Jack Barsumelish. And this has been the LSE Cold War Podcast. <laughs>